Welcome to A Higher Branch, a source of practical and powerful information for busy people dedicated to boosting their personal health and professional performance. I'm your host, Sam McCall. Welcome back to our body movement series with Luke Curry. This week, Luke takes us through the movements we need to avoid and those we should be doing daily to ensure we remain mentally and physically balanced. And not just healthy, but balanced, because movement is about balance. And pain goes to where there is imbalance, and pain goes to where weakness is. And we also discuss why sleep is important to our overall health. I hope you enjoy. People that are listening, uh, I'm going to get to ask Luke, uh, what are the like the three to five things that we need to absolutely avoid. Sure. And the three to five things that we should be doing daily. And if it's, you know, focused on movement, then that's okay because you are a biomechanical expert, right, mm-hmm. when it comes to movement. But on this uh, issue of heart rate variability, what do you think are the top tips really for people apart from, you know, breathing? But people are sitting in their car now or at home. They quickly forget, you know, yeah. and... You get behind a desk, you're on your laptop, you've got email after email. I mean, what do we do? Do we uh, resign from our jobs, go live, <laughs> grow a beard and live in the mountains somewhere? I mean, we can't avoid them. Is humanity sure. destined to just dysfunction, disease, dementia, depression, yeah. darkness? Is that what we're destined for here? I, I, because everything we do is just so against nature. Right. Um, and I think, we, again, with the lifestyles we lead, Let's be honest, we can't change everything we'd love to change. I mean, I love what I do, but if you gave me an option to be at home with my kids all day and travel the world and, do, yeah. you know, like, yeah, it'd be amazing. Um, but the way we're living right now, and I'm, I know with a lot of your um, listeners and audience, is that they're in high-end jobs, they're in corporate-type roles. And they're sitting all day. And they're sitting all day, but I'm sure most enjoy it. And get a kick out of it and a challenge. I know you, Sam, you love what you do and you're so challenged by it. That's what drives you. Yeah, absolutely. Do yeah. you want to get rid of that? Because, well, the question, no, 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 that's the thing. So yeah. we have to be smart enough to know that you place an incredible amount of stress on you to get things done. That's great. Now let's look at the other end of the spectrum. Let's just focus on the break. Yes. The simplest break is sleep. Yes. Let's talk about sleep. Yep. The, the conversation I talk to most chronic pain sufferers mm. when they come into the clinic is, tell me about your sleep. Now, it's mindset. Yes. It's not my sleep. It's not my sleep. How do you sleep? Terribly. Well, I'm never one to put words in someone's mouth. I'm like, How do you know it's not your sleep? Because it's my back. It's nothing to do with my sleep. Yeah. They're just looking at it from the physical. From the physical. Not the emotional. This is really what the theme of this talk is about, isn't right. it? There's a... There's a relationship between the mental, the emotional, and the physical. Such a strong connection. And there is no advice I will give unless I've trialled it myself. One of the pillars in our, in my business is being a leader, which means I need to inspire others to change through action, yes. which means I need to experience it first. So I monitor everything. I'm, I love my data. Yes. And we've had this conversation where when I was isolated and I had more time at home, I was monitoring my HRV regularly, every yes. day. And I'd monitor my sleep and my sleep patterns. The key things out of it is when I would watch my heart rate variability drop significantly was when my sleep was out of whack and my nutrition and exercise all changed. So if we think about sleep, going through a chronotype test, I know you've spoken about this before, is go for the low-hanging fruit. You can do a chronotype test online and work out which of the four chronotypes are you. So for those who aren't familiar with the chronotype, talking from uh, anthro like anthropology we all weren't designed to sleep at the same time some sleep later some sleep earlier some rise later some are more analytical in the morning some are better at training in the morning if we can work what resonates with our body then it might help us to sleep more soundly yes we're more productive at work we're less stressed example because we're not going against what our body's trying to do for us so uh we can put up a link on there um, to one that I enjoy, so that's a chronotype test. The other thing is just following really simple sleep hygiene advice. Don't stimulate your mind too too soon before bed. Don't eat large meals before bed. Uh, I know one thing you like, Sam, is it's harder to do in winter, but in summer, eat while the sun's still up. When the sun goes down, 
not a great time to digest, like to eat a lot of food. Also, that we talk about overstimulation before bed, so uh, watching TV before bed. Uh, I look, I'm terrible at this, but I watch a comedy before I go to sleep, so I'm not stressed yes. before I sleep. And I've got my glasses on, which block all the blue light. They get some. Oh, you, you wear the blue blockers. I okay. do enjoy the blue light. Yeah, uh, blockers now. On the Aura ring, we can put a tag that says, when you're watching TV, or I'll put in watching TV with blue light blocker, then I can check and go back and have a look at the tag and say, every night I wore my blue light blocker, I was able to get to sleep quicker. So if we go back to wow. the yep. neurophysiology of this, yeah. when, when the blue light enters the eye and it goes through the optic nerve, there's a nuclei that sits above the op- optic nerve so it's this above, so it's suprachiasmatic mm-hmm. nuclei. And when this blue light is exposed, what happens is melatonin isn't released because the melatonin is what helps us to go to sleep, right? Yeah, so we get a buildup of right. adenosine, which is a hormone, which starts to tell you you're tired when we no longer receive a blue light entering the optic nerve or through the Because that's how we lived previously. Yeah? Right. In ancient times, there was no electricity, no light. As soon as the sun went down, our then, body was induced into sleep. Right, because the light admitted is yeah. no longer a blue light. So we see different lights in the UV spectrum, yes. right? Yeah. Which is why warm light is much better to have in your house than bright light. So if we can at least block this blue light coming in, then what we're going to give our bodies is a better chance to then fall asleep. Yes. Because we're yes. now we're allowing adenosine, which is a hormone which makes us tired, which builds up in our brain, and melatonin to meet at its peak at the same time. Now, according to your chronotype, it will say go to bed around 10 o'clock for myself. If I respect what my body's telling me and I respect the natural beings of my body, then I'll fall asleep at this time. Now, for the listeners who have experienced with kids, for example, they start to doze off and then their kid's having a nightmare or they're crying and you have to get up and you turn the lights on and you have to deal with them and then you go back to bed, you might find it harder to get back to sleep now. Yep, absolutely, yeah. So adenosine is still rising in, in the brain, which is making mm. you tired, but you can't get this melatonin level to come back. So now you're awake. <laughs> right? I remember going through this, yep, yeah, when so, I was a young parent. Yep. Yeah, so I'm going through the uh, nightmare stage with my seven-year-old, <laughs> which is always fun. So uh, when we're talking about how we can get to sleep, putting... Putting it simply is that don't eat big meals at night. We can talk about not being too exposed to light. Artificial night. light. Artificial yeah. lights. Um, also, um, reading a book before bed. Yeah, like I know Jim Quick will is say. Is that a good thing? I think it's a good thing. I know Jim Quick will say from a learning standpoint, read in the morning. Yes. Now we're talking about two different things. Yes, yes. One is some people are more analytical and will take in more information. Uh, in the morning depends what you're reading as well right i know for me as a student when i was studying a lot is that the more i read at night and there's a great book um, why we sleep which talks about learning before sleep having a good night's sleep actually helps you to store that memory what you've just learned which means by reading before bed you're challenging the eyes you're getting a little bit tired you get a little bit more tired and then you're also doing some education and then when you wake up in the morning then usually you can remember what you read the night before. It bounces around in your head. Yes. So you get that as well. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so I like reading before I go to sleep. Um, a couple of other things are making sure you exercise. Don't exercise too close to bedtime. Because from a nervous system standpoint, you don't want to upregulate your nervous system. And particularly if you're like me and if you like taking uh, some maybe pre-workout or caffeinated <laughs> workout, I haven't taken that stuff. You haven't taken it? You should try it. It's fantastic. (laughs) Um, If you like taking that type of stuff, don't Mm. take it after midday because it will just destroy your sleep patternings as well. So if you want to improve your HRV or this nervous system response, sleep is critical. So what HRV level? A lot of people can measure their HRV through the Apple Watch, through things like Whoop. Whoop, O-ring. The O-ring, yeah. So what is the optimal HRV? um, Yeah. Yeah. or, Or... Rather, what's the sweet spot you need to get to t- for recovery yep. if you're an active athlete or if you're someone who's injured sure. and you want to put your body in a healing state? Yep. What is the optimal HRV? There is no optimal number because it's dependent on you. So it's very dependent on the individual. So what we suggest with that then, it's important to have a baseline. 
Right. So you need to measure your HRV. And if you're not, and I'm not saying to everyone go out and measure your HRV right now, because sometimes just checking in with yourself and saying, how do I feel in the morning is sometimes enough. So the general gist would be have a baseline Mm. because if you put on an aura ring, it usually takes a week to start developing a baseline. That's right. Then from the baseline or even your whoop will take a week or two to work out your baseline. Then what we do from that baseline is we then start adding things and we'll start seeing, okay, is it improving or is it lowering and getting worse, I dare say? Yes. Yes. So let's say, for example, you start a new exercise program now and if you want to see if your nervous system is adapting well over a six-week to 12-week training cycle, check back in with your HRV. You might see strength gains. You might be able to test it that you're running a marathon in a faster time. Um, you might be able to correlate that with your HRV. And if it's improving, we know that your body, your nervous system is also adapting well. But if, for example, in athletes who experience an overload in their nervous system and their HRV is slowly dropping, we know that if we see a decrease in HRV over three days and they continue to tax their body, there's a high chance of an upper respiratory infection leading into competition. And I've seen this in clinic with athletes coming in right before a competition saying, this is terrible. Now I'm starting to feel like I'm getting the flu. I'm like, because you've driven yourself, you've started becoming a little bit anxious yes. and your HRV starts dropping. So I wasn't measuring my HRV when I was training, but I remember there was like a week or two where I was just smashing it in the gym. But yeah. My body would overheat at night when I'd be going to sleep. It was sending me, my heart rate was going up and I wasn't sleeping well. Sure. But a lot of people think that, oh, but that's all right. The body's getting stronger and I'm training. But I actually didn't have many gains during that period. The most gains I've had when I've rested really well. Yeah. So Taken a few days off, slept more. So the body doesn't gain in the gym. You stress the body in the gym. Yeah. When you run, when you walk, you stress the body when you're doing those activities your gains occur when you recover yes so if we think about overloading strategies that a lot of trainers will use for example so when you're in a program that works really really well your trainer or your coach strength coach whoever it might be they will progressively overload your system yes they won't just overload you straight away so if someone comes to me and they go i want to run a marathon great go and run 42 k's right now be silly of us because stress adaptation needs to occur, progressive overload needs to occur, means that if you go for a run this week or on day one, I need to know how you feel the next day and that you're recovered enough to now overload a little bit more. Yep. A lot of the time what we see during the week is people overload their body to the same level, if not higher every day, not necessarily doing more in the gym, but their body perceiving it as higher stress because their body hasn't had the ability to recover. Yes. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, so, absolutely. Yep. So now yep. if we go into a class, into a group fitness class, which isn't, and I'm, again, I'm not ragging on group fitness classes. They, they, they hit a certain market and a great purpose. We just have to be educated as people doing these classes to say on any given day now, we have to check in and ask ourselves, what should our rate of perceived exertion and RPE be today? So you'll see a lot of terminology coming out instead of saying, we're going to work off a percentage of your one rep max of a back squat, which doesn't make sense because how strong you are, how energetic you are, how recovered you are is going to change every day. So now it should be, how do I feel today? And I'm going to work according to that. And that's a subjective thing. But if you've got your HRV now, and this is very important for a lot of people who measure HRV a lot, your HRV doesn't tell you you're ready to train. It tells you you're ready to recover. Ah, okay. So I, you're, so I needed to know that. So yeah. your readiness score yes. doesn't necessarily mean you're going to go and have a fantastic session. So we get a lot of people come in, they go, I trained terribly, but my yeah. readiness score was like 100%. Yes. I'm like, no, it's telling you you're ready to go and tax your system and your nervous system is in a state where it can manage more stress and it can recover. That's what it's telling you. Okay. Yep. So, so even when your HRV is low, and we've had the other example where people yeah. go, my HRV is low stuff, but I'm going to go train. I trained like a demon. I got a one RM. Yes. I'm like, great. How do you feel the next day? Because it's not telling you you're ready to load. It's, asking, it's saying to you, you go and load today, you're probably going to be okay tomorrow. So go and have a big session. Yep. So we have to understand what we're trying to measure there. So that's why it's important to, uh, to rest and recharge after the workout. Right. 
It's recovery is the the important phase. It's the most important phase. Yeah, it's the most important phase. The most important phase. Yeah. Because without it, mm-hmm. you'll have decreasing gains. See, that's what I didn't respect right. before I got injured, the recovery. Right. And when you go back to your original question, yeah. are we exercising? Is it right for us in the long term? Yeah, it is. If we respect the other aspect, which is if exercise is the stress, recovery is what we need in order yep. to have longevity. So we okay. need to give our time, uh, our body time to recover, adapt and become stronger. Yep, yep, totally. So if you are listening and you are training regularly and stressing your body, which is what exercise is meant to do, right. to grow or to be more adaptable, then you need to start respecting your recovery boost your sleep a lot of people focus a lot on diet and don't they really over (laughs) you know um they look over sleep yeah and for me the game started happening when i started just going to bed earlier sleeping longer Mm. and um yeah checking my hrv it's it's uncanny as soon as my hrv goes above what my normal levels are so into the 40s i'm like fantastic that day yeah you know in terms of moving without pain but as soon as it drops below 40 into the low 30 sometimes high twos i I know i'm gonna have a crappy day (laughs) because my aura ring you know tells me hey you and you can usually tell if you ate too late ate too heavy yep artificial light at night or alan i call it yeah (laughs) just think of this horrible person called alan and think of alan (laughs) as the person you need to stay away from at night and it's the artificial light at night Yeah, this is an area that is super critical and we're going to be talking in future podcasts a lot about HRV. We've spoken in the past about sleep. I think almost everyone rates it highly. We've done an amazing podcast with Alessandra Edwards on how to get to sleep, stay asleep and get great quality sleep. So I think that was episode number 11, one of our early ones. So if you want to know more about that, look at our previous podcasts. But um, so, Luke, I just want to go back a little bit and say and ask you, um, and you're more than welcome to stand up as I am at the moment. If I'm you're, super comfy right you're now. Su- it's super comfy. <laughs> um, so what are the movements that, you know, okay, not stay away from, but be careful of? And especially as we fatigue yeah. in a class of 30 or 40 people with only one or two instructors, right? Yeah. And you become sloppy. Your form becomes sloppy. Sure. You know, uh, what are the movement the most? Is it squats? Is it bench press? Is it push-ups? You know, I was doing these exercises to build my shoulders. But when I showed you, you were horrified and said, don't do that, you know, because you're going to damage your shoulder. Right. Right. Um, and I also want you to tell us what are the most important joints of the body? Because I've heard the shoulder <laughs> yep. and the hips are the ones that are most susceptible, right? Right, okay. Uh, Let me start with that one because that's the easier one. And then yeah. we can go into the, the do's and do nots because it's not as simple as that. Um, so if we talk about joints in the body, generally the most susceptible to injury are the joints that allow movement. So what I mean by that is if you think about the shoulder, yep. the shoulder is the most mobile joint in the body. Um, it can move up to 16,000 different ways. And it's designed that way because we need to use them to pick things up and without our hands, then we're really just birds, right? To hang as well. To hang, to, so, to grip things. That's yeah. what we need in everyday life. Now, we know that the amount of range, and I won't say that the shoulders aren't inherently unstable, it's just that they have a tremendous amount of range, which means they, they can become unstable quite quickly or quite easily. Yep. Now, the shoulder is designed that way because the shoulder can make up for a lot of range that other joints can't make up. For example, if you've got to rotate and twist to pick something out of the back of the car. Yep. Now, if your thoracic rotation, if your spine can't rotate or your neck can't assist you to rotate, you're just going to throw that arm over and hope that it's, everything's going to work well. Yes. So joints that generally move a lot are more susceptible. So that shoulder is susceptible. Areas that take a lot of load. So if we talk about through the spine, what parts of the spine are commonly overloaded? Usually transition points in the spine. What I mean by that is we have this beautiful S-shaped spine, areas that um, transition from one area to another. So if we think about the very upper part of the neck where the skull sits on top of the first cervical vertebra, commonly the upper part of the spine's 
um, indicated that. Yeah. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. Um, then you come down to the what we call the CT junction, so where the cervical spine meets the upper back, the thoracic. Yep. So if we talk about disc injuries in a lot of people, it's usually in this area. When we talk about forward head carriage, we generally see this bump. Or people will come in, they go, I've got this bump at the base of my neck. Is that normal? Like, yes, it is normal. Yeah. That's okay. It's called the spinous process. Um, but the more your head moves forward, that bump will become more prominent. Right. Yeah. Right. So generally around this area, these transition areas is where it's going to be overloaded a little bit more. We start to come down and we think about the bra line on a lady. It's the same in a guy. Is that this apex of this thoracic curve is commonly loaded in a flex-based state as well, around T7, the seventh vertebra down. Yep. Then as we start going lower, we start hitting the TL junction where the thoracic meets the lumbar spine. So if you feel your back arching off a chair right now, generally the area just about to hit mm-hmm. is the TL junction. So you've got the main part of the mid part of the back on it. As we start to go down, that's the TL junction. So when people are trying to foam roll the thoracic and extend over a foam roller, generally it's their TL junction loading up. We come down and then we go the final lumbar vertebra sitting on the sacrum so that triangular bone that makes up the back of the pelvis this area as well is quite vulnerable so again if you look at a lot of the disc issues that people talk about in the neck commonly it's that lower part of the cervical spine in the lumbar spine it's commonly around that l5 on the s1 l5 on sacrum and the l4 on l5 so it's those two bottom lumbar vertebra so these are common common impact loading areas so for a runner for example we have transition segments to shock absorb as well so common areas that are injured or um, vulnerable to injury are areas that we generally uh, will either uh, areas of transition or areas that we need a shock absorbing and we just don't have the awareness around these areas to control load going through them or that we've habituated our pattern in such a way that we've predisposed this tissue to stress now there's a lot of argument out there that but if we keep just stress loading this tissue every stress we add to the body will um, create more resilience to it. For example, a bunion is really just the body adapting to the bone being pressed in a certain direction as we roll in. So it lays down more bone. Wolf's law is what it's called, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like when we stress our muscles, the muscle gets bigger, stress adaptation. When we load our bones, the bone gets thicker, stress adaptation. So then there's the argument of, well, what if we just loaded it more? But sometimes we overload it more and our body can't recover enough and we keep loading it and then it breaks down. So areas of the body that are vulnerable might be the knee. That's a common one that I hear. A lot of people say, I've had knee injury, knee pain. Yeah. Yep. Commonly, it's a, from what we see in clinic, the knee is the middle child being picked on Yep. by the ankle and the hip, the older and the younger sibling. <laughs> okay, yep. So if we go back to that shock absorption uh, description we are talking about, that eccentric loading, that lengthening loading yep. of the quad... Now, if we can't take it through our hip or through our foot, then the poor knee says, I've got these guys, let me take over it, and we, we become very dominant in our quads. Or what we start doing is that we can't control, we can talk about this and whether we do videos of this, try playing We will be doing yeah, videos of this. So which will explain this beautifully. So in future, um, this is more of an introduction, but in future, because this is an important area for, uh, for the tree of health, and in future we will be doing some workshops yeah. on the various movements. And I love some of the stuff that I've seen you on your own Instagram account, which is called, is it KC Sports? KC Sports Cairo. KC Sports Cairo on Instagram. Oh, yep. I've learned a lot from those. If you head over to that, and you'll see a lot of the movements that Luke will talk about, and some of the um, the movements you should be avoiding yeah. as well. But you 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 mentioned something. Sorry, just to interrupt there. Yeah. Um, the the suspension, you know, aspect. A lot of people get stiffer as they get older right. because of sitting mm-hmm. a lot. And also we tend to hang on to emotions in our body and those emotions, whether it's anxieties, fears, they tend to stiffen us up, don't don't we? So that impedes the way we walk, jog. Because if you see children, they're just so floppy, right? And (laughs) And they're happy. And they're happy, yeah. So they're very supple. So it's like, think of a new growth, you know, a, a seedling. It's very supple. It bends with the breeze. Think of an old tree which is dried up. Right, the breeze comes and the branches break, mm. and a lot of our bodies are like that, aren't they? Very much so. So we do dehydrate as we get older. We are all dehydrating, so we're turning into a prune. Um, 
And the thing is with that too, from a physiological standpoint, is that our collagen fibers start to change as well. So our collagen fibers or our tissue in our body isn't as elastic as we get older. You'll see this in our skin, in our wrinkles. And when we start talking about things like arthritis and wear and tear, yeah, we don't look at the wrinkles on your forehead and say, oh, it's just wear and tear. That's just a part of aging. It's normal. Yes. We should actually, like uh, in Boulder, yes. for example, there's a happiness curve, right? Yes. We talk about as we get older, we're happy. When we're younger, we're happy. And it's just kind of recalibrating what normal is. So if our collagen fibers are changing as we get older and we are going from that nice, supple, green tree swaying in the breeze and we're elastic and bendy. Yeah. But then our collagen fibers start changing as we get a little bit older and we become a little bit more dehydrated and a little bit stiffer, then yes, generally speaking, we will become more stiff. So, But yep. we can change it and we can that, slow the process. That's what that's what I want to get to. So because I, before I became conscious of this, even me previously going down the stairs, I realized I was jarring my joints because I wasn't allowing my knee to bend, my hip to bend, my ankles to bend. Now I'm conscious of it. Right. I'm going down, I'm saying, I can't even feel the impact on my body. I'm like, you feel like a child again. Right. So tell us, yeah, how do you remain supple and bendy or what did you call it? Just that. Uh, <laughs> I can't even remember. I just, yeah. Maybe my, yeah. You know, to have that sort of air suspension feel about the Shock you. absorption. That. Shock absorption. Shock absor- yeah. yeah. So we'll talk from a mechanical standpoint, which is um, quite simple. We have to think in our body, we've got a lot of tissue like our muscles. We've also got a beautiful system called fascia. Yes. So this almost, imagine like a spider web, this fractal chaos wrapping it all around our body. It's uh, like a silver lining all the way around our tissues, our gut, our viscera, our organs, everything, our bones. And the way this works in the body, um, and the reason why I talk about this with stiffness is because it works in conjunction with muscle. So the way the nervous system works is it says, when your muscles aren't active, when you wake up in the morning and you feel back stiffness, yes. people go, I've got arthritis. Don't panic. It's probably not arthritis. You've probably got a little bit of change to your bone, which is like wrinkles on your skin. Yes. And that's normal. And probably not causing as much pain as what you think it is. But what happens is because your nervous system is saying your muscles aren't active because you've been asleep, basically unconscious, yes. for eight hours or more yes. or less, then the fascial system has to upregulate. And because we're not going to fall into a heap on the floor, the fascia now tightens up. Yes. The thing with fascia is you don't have conscious control over it. We've got no conscious control over fascia. So what controls it then? The autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system, which controls every autonomic, uh, automated system in our body. Sympathetic, parasympathetic. So indirectly, we do have control over it. Indirectly. By breathing better, sleeping better. R- yep. Right. Yep. Okay. And we can control it. We can yep. control it. And we can manipulate it. Now, say mainly through four areas. One is bioactive proteins, which is a whole other area, which I won't go into. We've got mechanical influence, which, which means in between your fascial layers. So let's put into context for the listeners out there who wake up with morning stiffness. We're talking about the lower back. So you go down and put your shoes on in the morning. Mm. Like, but Luke, I wake up every morning and putting my shoes on is just a nightmare. My back is so stiff. Do you think I've got arthritis? I'm like, how does it feel after a hot shower? Oh, it's easier. Mm. Okay, let me explain why that is. Or when you're on holidays, look, my back stiffness is gone on holidays. My neck stiffness is gone. My hip stiffness is gone. It must be my ergonomic setup at work. Yes. I'm like, okay, let's come back and let me explain why you're not feeling it. The first one is, particularly when we talk about fascia, and um, think about tissue layers. Between these layers of fascia, don't think about your fascia stretching. Don't think about your tissue as stretching. Rather, continuous layers like tissue paper sliding over the top of one another. Now, if we have an acid between those tissue layers called hyaluron or hyaluronic acid, then the tissue is hydrated and therefore it's lubricated, which means now it can start to slide and glide wherever we want it, which will open up freedom of movement. Okay. So in this thoracolumnar fascia, so this fascia that encapsulates our lower back and which is continuous with our gut as well. Yes. If we can now hydrate this in the morning through mechanical influence so if you've been sleeping and stagnant you're dehydrated yes you get up and start moving starts improving you start pumping hyaluron in this area yes so that improves it so mechanical influences which is why walking and moving is so critical why fidgeting is so important like i'm doing now like what you're fidgeting <laughs> i'm watching you fidget so why fidgeting is super I can't important sit for that long that's why right. <laughs> we're gone which is why kids move all the time so it's natural 
fidgeting is normal. So why do we lock them up in schools? But Be- that's another topic. Because it's know. a control issue and let's not go into it. And <laughs> you know, schools are designed Sit down, to- Tommy, and sit still for the next six hours. And which is why, again, yeah. not to digress, but why learning is different for so many kids, which is why so many great occupational therapists who treat kids with learning difficulties are doing amazing things. And if you look at most of their work, they're getting them to move balance, catch, play, mm. to drive systems. Mm. Musical instruments drives learning ability. Yeah. You're opening up all these neurological pathways. We're all not designed to learn the same way. Jim Quick will talk about this. Yes. We're designed differently. Um, and we have to respect that. So bringing it back into the stiffness in our body is that mechanical influences is one of the aspects, which is why moving throughout the day is critical. The other one is uh, temperature regulation. In colder environments, we're going to stiffen up more. In warmer environments... We've got more hydration of tissue. When people go away on their holidays, and I went to Hawaii. It was beautiful. The sun was out. What were you doing? I was eating like I'd have breakfast, lunch, dinner. Okay, so you had regulated eating. You were out in heat yes, or warmer environments, exercising more, but not in the context of exercise, just moving. Just moving. Just moving. So you controlled your mechanical influences. You had a beautiful temperature in which you're hydrated in your system and you controlled your nutrition. And you're telling me your pain was less? It's logic. Yes. But now you come back to work and now your pain is worse. And then you're concerned about ergonomics, which is a whole nother kettle of fish we can break into. But um, I'm like, have you ever thought about the way you feel at work is driving an emotion which drives your posture, which drives the way you feel in your body? Absolutely. Because it's perceived tissue trauma. By you sitting at your desk, you're not tearing anything. You're not truly harming your tissue. You're not harming the muscle, the end organ. You're challenging your nervous system. That's why, I mean, when my injury manifested itself, it started because I'd be sitting and I'm thinking, why am I in pain? I've been sitting for the last two, three hours doing nothing. Yeah. And now the pain's getting worse. And the more I'd move, the better it felt. <laughs> right. And if you had a tear in your muscle, the more yeah. you move and you, well, within reason... There are some treatments where we do have to load your tissue up, or a lot of them we do have to load your tissue, but progressively. But if you're getting up and moving around and that's better for you, we know that a lot of the nerves that stimulate the muscle have a faster signal back to the spinal cord and back to the brain than a lot of the ones that we perceive as pain. Now, we don't truly have pain receptors in our body. We've got mechanical receptors, we've got chemical receptors, we have thermal receptors which pick up all different stress responses, and then we have an emotional response, which will perceive it as pain, which is why we all perceive pain differently. That's right. Okay, so there's yep. an emotional trigger here as well. Now, if by moving your muscles, now say, for example, you're sitting in the car and your back starts to hurt, what do you move? Uh, what do you do? You move. Yes. Why do you fidget? Now, think about students in a lecture theater and why they shift from one butt cheek to another. They're compressing their tissue. They're not damaging their tissue, but they're just compressing it. Yes. They might be cutting off a little blood supply to the tissue, but without thinking about it, or if you're on a plane, you shift. You shift, that's right. you shift right. to the opposite one. Yep. So you fidget or you move. Only small movements, but it's enough to downregulate what we perceive as a pain response or a discomfort. Yes, yes. We don't need to associate that with trauma. Yep. Okay, so moving is just critical. I can't stress that enough. And this is why when the question at the start was, is exor- should we be exercising differently? No, because if you truly believe that that is right for you, I'm never going to challenge your belief system. I'm happy to challenge my own, and I do this regularly. And the beautiful thing about a belief system is you're right, regardless of what I think is your belief. That's right, yep. So if you believe the right activity for you is running or jumping or squatting or CrossFit or F45, perfect. Just understand within that activity, there is a nice, efficient way to, for you to move in a variety of different ways, effectively and efficiently to achieve a task or a specific goal that you want to achieve. So now it has to become task-specific, which makes function more functional. So what, what then movements in any one of those exercises, uh, crazes, F45, CrossFit, what are the movements that you think people need to get the most direction, supervision, yeah. before they just jump straight in? Look, I think anything that challenges... End range loading. So what I mean by that is... That? Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah, oh. so what I mean by that... If, so let's if, look at a squat then. Right. I was yeah. going to say, let's use your hips as an example if yep. you don't mind talking about them. 
The shape of our hips are yeah. different for everybody. Yes. Hips from Scotland are different from hips in Asia, yes. for example. If we have a look at cultural differences, in Asia, squatting is a part of everyday life. Yes. In our society in Australia, not so much, as in we don't need to deep squat to go to the bathroom. Yes. So there's a lot that goes into why we can deep squat and what makes up the shape of our bones in our hips, which start developing when we're in the womb. So the fetal position when you're in the womb, start developing what your hip shape looks like. Now, if you have a deeper hip socket and the ball that sits in that hip socket is now encapsulated and it's deeper, you might find it a little bit harder to go into a deep squat. So for example, if you're sitting at home and if you pull your knee to your chest and if you can't get your knee all the way to, or your thigh to touch your rib cage, but you can when you roll the knee out to the side a little bit more, that's the natural path of your hip. We shouldn't have to fight that. So it's not a dysfunction or no, it's, it's not what you're something given. you need to stretch out or right. smash out or grind out. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. And this is where normative data that we look at will say your hip should flex to 120 degrees, uh, etc. is based on normative data. The problem is there is no normal person. We're all different. We're all different. It's yes. a huge amount yes. of data and then they're finding what the average is, what the norm, what the middle yeah. point is, right? It's a very, very good point, uh, Luke. Yeah. And we're chasing the norm. Yeah, and we shouldn't be. We shouldn't no. because there is no perfect. Chasing perfection is our downfall. So don't force it. Whatever you're doing it. is don't force it and don't listen to whoever's telling you to force it. <laughs> right, because there is a yeah. lot out there that will say, no, you can change it. And I'm like, yes, to a certain degree we can change it, but to what detriment? Now, the general rule of thumb to the listeners who are out there, if you feel like you're trying to stretch something and if you just feel like there is a sudden block, yeah. like if you go to push a wall over, there's a sudden block. Yes. Don't push past it. And if you're concerned about it, go and get it checked. We can assess it. And if you're really, really concerned about it, you can get imaging. I don't recommend it for this, but yeah. there are ways to check it if you really want to know. The, the, the suggestion would be if you get to your end range and you feel a spring, if you feel like there's more to go, and there's cushion, and there's ways to test this. We can do it in, in the practice as well. If you feel like you can get more range and it's not painful, by all means, do it. If you feel like by stretching the ankle, there's a block in the front of your ankle, so it's like bone pushing into bone type thing, don't push it. But if you feel a stretch in the calf, go for it. You're stretching the right tissue. Yep. Is there, is there a time that we're going to get to or should get to where – Okay, now they say before you start an exercise regime, go to your doctor, have a blood test, you know, check your heart rate, blood pressure, all that. But they don't check your physiology. They don't check what we just talked about, right? Yeah. Is there, is there a place like or, or are there such things as clinics where you can go and get a physiological check, biomechanical check to say, okay – Okay, when you do this particular move, I want you to do it in this way right. or limit your range that way or don't do that stretch or don't do that foam roll or don't, mm. right? Because when I started getting uh, minimal pain, it was mild at first, I got a stretch instructor who stretched the F out of me, right? right. And it made it worse. Say, so, no, no, if you stretch it, and it, but it kept getting it worse. So... The medicine becomes a poison if it's the wrong thing. Right. But, like, how do people get a biomechanical check to, so to know thyself, to know thy body, you know? Right. So this is why in 2012 we set the practice up exactly how we have it, to be the middleman in between people wanting to achieve a health yeah. goal. And we specifically say health or fitness goal. So don't come to see people like yourself when you're broken. You can if you need to, but also oh, yeah. before as a preventative measure. Usually what we'd say, and particularly as people are starting to go back to gyms now, I'm doing a lot of live feeds for people to say, yeah. this is a great time to reset and to think about the movement you're doing before and ask, is it the right movement for you? Yeah. So if my general rule of thumb is if you're going to see someone, l walk around their clinic. If you want to go back and learn to squat, I need to know in that clinic there's an area where they can squat, they can deadlift. If it's to rope climb, I want to see a rope hanging from the ceiling. Yep. I want to know there's experience there or they're trained up in it. And what's needed? What's needed from a neurological standpoint, physiological, biomechanical? Because this one-size-fits-all principle, it's kind of like, remember when you used to go to a health practitioner, and I dare say yeah. there's still some out there, and it's like, oh, you've got a hip issue? Here's an A4 piece of paper. Do these. 
That's right. That's right. that's what I experienced like, from people. Exercise <laughs> one, two, three, four. Yeah, do these exercises. That's like saying to you, if I, uh, your nervous system's ramped up through the roof, go and meditate. Yeah. Won't work for everybody. That's what, right. It doesn't yeah. work for everybody. If anything, yeah. it drives some people more into a sympathetic response. And again, that's a whole other conversation for another yes. day. Yes, but, um, <clears throat> but what I find fascinating in our education system is we teach people fundamentals on how to count, how to read, how to write, physics, which I love personally, physics. But, but what do we teach them about the system or the machine that they live in? That's right, nothing. Nothing. Yes. So we panic. And when we panic, what do we do? We look for advice from anyone. And um, I won't rant on this too much, but Jim Quick spoke about this recently in one of his podcasts. The amount of content we're getting. Yes. He calls it an avalanche, a deluge. Yep. Digital deluge. Yep. yep. The amount we're getting. Yes. And I did a post on this the other day. I said, we learn from mimicking those we respect and look up to. Yes. Right? The mirroring neurons. So we've got these neurons in our body where we watch and we copy. Monkey see, monkey do. Yes. And all I could think about when Jim Quick was talking about that was if you're watching this stuff on social media and if you believe it's real, that's okay. But if it's monkey see, monkey do, which monkey are you watching? Because you don't want to turn into the monkey. That's right. Yep. That isn't educated, right? So what I mean by that is there are a lot of fitness programs out there. There's a lot of uh, advice given. And we have to understand where, the, where this advice is coming from. And a lot of time it is coming from a great place with all great intention to try and help people. Flip it. They're also running a business. Marketing a work occurs without going down the marketing path. No, absolutely. I'm with you on this. Yep, yep, yep. If you create enough stress or anxiety around an issue, and if I can create a solution... You're going to make money out of it. You're going to make money. Yeah, that's right. And unfortunately, a lot of what's coming out on social media is we're going to bulletproof your back. We're going to bulletproof your shoulder. Yeah. Excuse the language because it frustrates me. Absolutely. Yep. We cannot yep. bulletproof people. We cannot prevent injury as much as I can prevent someone having a heart attack, as much as I can prevent someone by stepping out onto the street and getting hit by a car. I can give them guidance and say, if you crossed up at that set of lights, yeah. you probably would have reduced the risk of the injury. Yes. But even then, I can't control the other car. Yes. It's the same with injury. We can control what we can, but we can't control everything. It includes the information we receive. So going back to your original question about what should people be doing before they go back into a gym, is there an avenue for people to get assessed? 100%. Look up for sports practitioners who love this stuff. There's a lot of us around Sydney, there's a lot around Australia, there's a lot around the world where we can either look at it from a, depends on where you want to go with it, simple breakdown of a squat. What does it require? Well, we need triple flexion of the ankle, knee and hip. Yep. We need stability, so we need more nervous system control. We need a physiological assessment. Have you got the strength to complete what you're trying to do? Have you got the endurance? Have you got the power? Have you got the agility? Have you got the acceleration, et cetera? So we start breaking these things down too. Yes, yes. If you haven't got the ankle range and if you feel like you've got that mechanical block in your ankle, what are your alternatives? So when you go to a class, you don't have to rely on the instructor asking you a history because they've got to account for 20 other people in the class where you can automatically go, okay, well, my ankle doesn't move as well as what it should. Therefore, when I squat, I know I need ankle movement, but I don't have it. What's my number one alternative or number two, depending on the task I have to complete? I could reverse lunge. By reverse lunging, I don't require as much ankle movement. Or what I could do is a box squat, which requires my shin to stay vertical, and I could sit to a target and stand back up. Ah, yes. So you can vary activities so people still feel included because that's important. This is the skill, that's right. This is the skill that's required and the duty of care, the level of care that's required by a lot of personal trainers. Mm. And look, I hope they self-regulate, but if they don't, I I suspect that the government will start regulating. Yeah, and I think it will happen. I'm hoping it will happen soon. And a lot of the PTs we work with are tremendous. They're fantastic. A lot of PTs are hungry yeah. for knowledge and information, um, which is amazing. And the PTs who I resonate with the most are the guys that we're in a team for yeah. the client. And that's the other thing I say to the listener right now is find a team. Don't find a practitioner. Don't find a PT. Just find a team of people that work together and respect each other's skill set. Yep. Yep. Because the, the one thing that never helps the client 
or the person in the middle is when, but my trainer told me this and my practitioner told me this or my doctor told me this, it doesn't work. Yes. Because now we get pulled in all different directions and who are you to believe? Should you organise a meeting for all of them? That's what we do. And yeah. we, we often ask the PT, we'll say, on your next, uh, when you're going to do your next PT with this client, why don't you do it in our clinic? Because we can do it. We've got the facility to train people in there. Yeah, that's why I love going to your clinic. It's fun, right? It should be fun. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So as we're going through the training session, and we'll let the PT guide it. Yeah. And then I'll interject. And the PT will interject. So again, it's about horizontal relationships. No one is higher than anyone else in that clinic. There is no vertical relationship. There is no, I'm the practitioner, listen to me. Yes. Because I've got to respect, number one, what is the PT trying to achieve with this person from their understanding? What does the client want? And what am now? What am I offering? Because at the end of the day, it's like a Formula One car, right? You've got the driver. Yep. Now the driver in this case is usually the coach. The car is the client. I'm just the pit crew. I'm the one looking at the data saying, guys, the car's pulling a little bit to the left. We have to look at inflation in the front left wheel. Your steering's a little yeah, bit shot. Good analogy, yep. So yep. my job is as a coach, as a yes. practitioner, not as someone saying do this and do that, but suggest making suggestions yep. and guiding, and that's it. That's our role. So for people looking to get getting back into activity, working with a great coach, uh, Jim, phenomenal gyms around Sydney. We are a, we have a, an abundance of great gyms, great programming, and even gyms will say this that it is hard for them to get around to everybody in group situations, and we have to take responsibility of that as individuals going to group classes to educate ourselves enough to say. I don't think that exercise is right for me. That's right. That's why I'm yeah. a big believer in you know people actually educating themselves, which is why I produce this podcast because it sounds very technical, but there are listeners out there who want to become experts in their own body. Doesn't mean they have to practice, you know, as chiropractors or physios. But yeah. you need to know your body, how it moves, how to how to and how to keep it, um, you know, better for longer as you. So you can age gracefully. Right. Yeah, and enjoy it. And going back to your point about uh, when you were doing the stretch classes. Now, I'm not... For those who know me, uh, I can get emotional around this topic. And I apologise. You don't like stretching, do you? It's not that I don't like stretching. Yes. <laughs> I think stretching has a place. Yeah. Definitely I've stopped a... stretching and I actually... I don't miss it. Right. Yeah. Now, I like to reverse engineer everything. So if people are sitting at home going, but I've always been told to stretch, you're telling me now I've got to stop? not saying stop but if i could teach you a way to do things quicker yes wouldn't you want to do that that's now, right yep so the first question i have is why do you stretch why do we stretch because we're tight muscles are stiff yep i need more range right let's use stiffness as an example why do we get stiff so now we keep going down this path why do we get stiff well if you want the nervous system standpoint we've got a beautiful reflex yeah where if you go to stretch a muscle, it's called a myotatic reflex. If you go to stretch a muscle, certain receptors in the middle of the muscle start getting pulled on. They don't want to be pulled, particularly at a specific speed. So it's velocity dependent, speed yep. dependent, which is if you've ever had a reflex taken of your knee and they hit the patella and it triggers that reflex quick and your muscle contracts. Mm -hmm. If you've ever tried stretching your hamstring, have you ever noticed how it starts pushing back against you? That's right, yep. Myotatic reflex is a protection strategy. Maybe your muscle has stiffened up, not because it's weak or not because it's tight because it hates you, but because it's trying to protect you because it loves you so much. And you want to take away the one safety net that's protecting you without understanding why it's become tight in the first place. Ah, yes. So we go to treat the end organ. Yep. I go back to why is it tight? Yes. And generally, it's, um, I'll give you an example of a lady who came in yesterday. She's like, this hip does not work well. It doesn't work well. I can't stretch it. So we stimulated her on so, so left hip. So I got her to press down on me, laying on her back, got her to press down through her right side of her lat, so mm -hmm. big muscle on her back on the, on, the, on the right. Then I passively just grabbed her leg and pulled it up and went straight up. Her body perceived threat when there was no system of support through her trunk to allow her ha hamstring to let go. Ah, when yes. we provide support, it's the same in every other aspect of our life. When you are provided the right amount of support and safety, you can express motion. Yes. Or you can express whatever it is you want to express. Think about why you see a psychologist. It is a safe 
environment to express something. Yes. When you go to a gym, you need to know you're in a safe environment to express movement. You do your best work in the office, in our office, when you feel like you're in a safe environment. Yeah. Right. So um, when we talk about stretching, am I anti it? I'm not. No, I'm not anti it. But I need to understand why you want to stretch something. And now we think about everything we want to stretch. Hamstrings. We spoke about balance systems. Hamstrings generally get tight because we've got poor balance systems. That's right. So fix the balance issue. Yeah. Change, yep. change the balance. Change. We change your toe touch really quickly. Hip flexors. Everyone's favorite muscle to stretch, the psoas. Everyone blames the psoas. When you really start looking into the psoas, it's one of those muscles that's a beautiful stabilizer and a mover. It's the only muscle that goes from the top part of the body to the bottom. All the way down. And from the front to the back right. as well. Yeah. So, so the back being the <coughs> spine, so it connects right to the front of the spine. Yeah. And it goes down to the front of your hip. Yeah. And when they've done a dissection on this muscle, which looks like a, like a thick strap muscle, they found different muscle fibers, some which are really important for stabilization, some which are really important for power output, so for generating movement. So it's a, it's a fantastic muscle for doing certain things. But it's also a muscle that tightens up when a person's anxious right. or so, stressed. Right. So Thomas Myers, who uh, talks a lot about fascial lines, these anatomy trains in the body, and when we were talking about flexion states in an emotional state or a stress-based response, of course the hip flexor is going to tighten up. It's a flexor. Yes. Right? What else tightens up now? The groin. Yes, that's the right. The adductors. Yep. You've got a lot of adductors in there. They make up a meaty part of your inner thigh. Mm. Part of the medial hamstring, inside hamstring group, make up a part of this too. Muscles down the back of the calf, these deep muscles that are actually used for shock absorption down into your foot, start to tighten up. You tighten up in your pelvic floor now as well. You tighten up through the muscles inside the um, hip, the iliacus, which makes up a part of this iliosis hip flexor complex. So instead of stretching... Meditate. Downregulate. Downregulate the stress. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Downregulate. Thanks again for joining us. Next week, we conclude our body movement series with Luke discussing what makes up our emotional state. Yes, our emotional state has a huge impact on the way we move. And we discuss the downside to our current healthcare system and the importance of finding people you trust, whether they be physios. Uh, exercise physios, chiros, osteos, personal trainers. Uh, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter at ahigherbranch.com to receive the podcast straight into your inbox. Have a great week.